Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Hello and welcome to our seventh podcast in our series. We're doing awfully well. Today we're discussing uh, somewhat of a different kind of case. It's the case of Annette Pendragon and Judy Coombe. It was an appeal that was decided by His Honour Judge Kesar. The case addresses one of the big questions of our modern day living, Severine and Maggie, the status of pets in contract law. And I believe all of us here have pets. Yes. A cat, two mice and a hamster. Ah, uh, you, you need to keep them well apart then, don't you, thinking about it? <laughs> ah, the, the, cat, the, the cat is actually currently sleeping in my son's bedroom. Oh, I thought you were going to say the cat is sleeping with a hamster. No, no, I think that would be a little bit too dangerous, but, you know, sleeping... That is what I meant. That is what I meant. <laughs> sleeping in, in the same room as the mice and completely, completely unaware of them so that's great good mice then and tim's got a puppy yes yes only well yes they're puppies until they're two years and this one is now one and a half still behaves like it's about three months old (laughs) (laughs) now well i i can top both of you because we've got two donkeys four rescue dogs two cats the geese were had by the uh, fox unfortunately We have a badger that comes calling, but you can't call a wild animal a pet. And I think there's some law on that, actually. (laughs) And we're not going to get into that today. So, in our case today, Miss Coombe decided to buy herself a puppy. Not as a show dog, we have to say, but just as a pet, and that is quite important. Miss Pendragon is the business owner of a business that breeds old English sheepdogs. And this particular puppy, which was later called Lady, a name which is likely to give the dog some sort of identity crisis, I think, (laughs) um, was sold to Miss Coombe in June 2018 for a price of £1,000. Believe it or not, the price was lower than what might normally be expected of a dog like this because Lady was the result of accidental mating and Lady was therefore never registered at the Kennel Club. Um, that was a sentence I never thought I was going to say on this podcast now that I'm saying it out aloud. Uh, we now need, of course, some background on dog health, I think. Uh, so I would summarise it as follows. Apparently, dogs can undergo tests for their hips to ensure that hereditary hip conditions are not passed down the line. And in this case, uh, Lady's mother had been tested for hip score, but... Miss Pendragon mentioned uh, to Mrs Coombe, I think, that the results were still outstanding. Evidence seems to suggest, though, that Miss Pendragon knew about with the results at this point, and that's something that we uh, we are going to have a look at, I think, in our discussion. 
Unfortunately, Lady um, had to undergo a complete hip replacement by the middle of 2019, and it was then later revealed that further surgery was actually required on the hip, which was then carried out in November of that same year. It was also found that Lady had a form of diabetes, um, which I don't think we'll go into in, in too much detail here. It should be noted that before the surgeries took place, Miss Coombe had complained to Mr Pendragon uh, of the matter, and Miss Pendragon had proposed that Miss Coombe give the doc back for a refund. Interesting. In the first round, then, it was held that Miss Pendragon had the right to refuse the offer of handing the dogs back, that she had a right to repair under the Consumer Rights Act because the puppy was not of satisfactory quality, and she was entitled under Section 24.2 of the Consumer Rights Act to a reduction in the price up to a full refund. Today, I have now the difficult task of directing the discussion since there are so many issues that Judge Kazar runs through. So first was the ground of misrepresentation, which it seems to me the judge dismisses on the ground that it was not actually argued. Uh, I'm sure we'll discuss this in more detail. Uh, in fact, my first question is probably going in that direction. Second, then, the judge holds that the duty to provide goods of satisfactory quality under Section 9 of the Consumer Rights Act is strict. Third, that the right to repair is not a right granted to the buyer, but is a right to ask the trader to repair or replace the item. And fourth, that the damages were incorrectly calculated. Of interest here is that Miss Coombe only asked for the 20% of the veterinary bills, um, which were not insured by her. The judge therefore concluded that the final sum was for a price reduction up to the full purchase price, plus damages of only £83.49, which was the uninsured part of the claim. I may need to add here that this is a case that was brought in a small claims court, so along that track. There's a lot for us to get through here, so... Let me stop rambling on and throw out a few questions. My first one, can we really assess whether an animal of is, is a satisfactory quality? That, there's a lot there. Severine, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think what this case shows is, you know, and I'm going to reply with uh, a little bit of a question. Uh, it depends what the animal is for so he as a pet i think the judge himself you know did uh comment on it it's it would be a lot easier uh, if this was done for breeding purposes so if so here uh mrs uh, uh, pet, uh sorry mrs Coombe, uh she clearly didn't want a lady for breeding purposes she just wanted it as a pet and in a way that kind of probably complicates the issue because she in spite of the problems and again this is something that the judge uh, commented upon at the end that um, she was quite happy uh, to keep the dog even though the dog was clearly costing her something and I think the uh, judge made the point of can you say that something doesn't have any value um, you know when it's costing you know what's the value of the pet when the pet has no value and yet it's costing uh, a a lot of money. So I would say this would be a lot easier if here it had been a straight case of uh, Mrs. Coombe acting uh, in the course of a business, because then it is a clearer 
business case, but I would say as a pet, it brings actually interesting question to can you be so black and white? You know, here we're talking about goods. Um, and so as a pet, can a pet, uh, and, and therefore in relation to the damages, I think maybe, you know, would we not uh, get into uh, not pecuniary, you know, non-pecuniary damages because a pet is here to bring enjoyment. So does that limit? So all these things, I think this is a really interesting question uh, and that is how I'm going to uh, answer to it. An animal for breeding purposes, clearly bought for the purpose of making a profit, probably would be a slightly easier black and white. So assessment of damages, the loss of value, consequential losses, etc., etc. But here, uh, what are what's the loss? Clearly, a dog is a chattel. When I was reading the case, I was thinking, okay, uh, this brings interesting questions to assessment of damages, which of course were not relevant here, so we're not asked. But it made me uh, think a little bit about. But yeah, so uh, a pet can be assessed for satisfactory quality because that's what the law requires here i think i would say um that there is a problem with the definitions in a sense i think that's what tim is uh, alluding to there's a problem with the definitions um applying to a sentient being like, like an animal um the consumer rights act understandably takes its definitions from the directive because we have acquired remember the consumer rights act from uh, the eu directive on consumer sales and the definition there is movable items now that's a very peculiar way of uh, talking about an animal in my view a movable item you wouldn't naturally uh, call an animal an item uh, it's probably a bit clearer under our existing or our previous uh, law, the Sale of Goods Act, which actually dates back, doesn't it, to 1893. Uh, and, and an English lawyer would not talk about items. Uh, they talk about chattels. So personal chattels. And I think there is case law that decides a, an animal is a chattel because to an English lawyer, that's just personal property. So that's about a, an ownership point. Um, and if you're the owner of the horse or the dog or whatever, that, that's sufficient for Sale of Goods Act. It becomes a little bit strange when we use the EU terminology of movable items, I think. Um, and that's probably the main beef that I have about um, using, I'm going to sound contentious now, using the Consumer Rights Act in a setting like this. I can understand exactly how it's come about because, as Tim said in the introduction, this is small claims track, uh, which means uh, you probably don't have a solicitor. Or if you do, you're paying for that solicitor yourself because you're not going to recover those costs, come what may, unless the other other side have behaved outrageously. Um, it's very difficult to recover legal costs of that nature in the small claims track. And that goes right up to £10,000. So what's small to you and I, or to lots of people, um, actually is, 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 is a different thing, perhaps from the rules. So it tends to mean, I think, that people making claims in the small claims track are um, geared to what information they get off the internet and things like that. 
And so if you did a Google search about consumer, anything consumer, bingo, I think you're going to get the Consumer Rights Act. So Miss um, Coombs is, is naturally led, I think, to formulate her claim using the uh, Consumer Rights Act and therefore using the terminology and the sections and all, all the rest of it. But I think we tend to forget, perhaps lawyers are as guilty as, as this as anybody else, we tend to forget that I would say that the Consumer Rights Act, like the Sale of Goods Act, is sort of grafted on top of the common law. And so there's a lot of law, if you like, under the waterline, which would be applicable and perhaps more naturally applicable to a contract of this nature, buying a pet. In other words, what I'm saying is, given that the right of repair was not applicable, given the context, and, and a lot of the provisions that the judge talked about were simply not applicable, given the particular facts, was the Consumer Rights Act actually much help to the claimant anyway? She could have formulated it simply using the good old common law. What's wrong with the common law? It works quite nicely here. And you don't get into all this tangle about right to repair. Does it apply? Um, and, and can it apply when you're, you're talking about surgery on an animal? Uh, it's it's a bit strange. So that's the, the beef that I have with it. I can see how it's come about. Naturally, it's explained by the small claims track background, as I say. But actually, the common law probably would have got to the same outcome here without the Consumer Rights Act. Would it, though? Wouldn't we say that mitigation would, would get in the way of that and say, you know, put the dog No, it wouldn't. Down, I mean, I, that's that's... That, that, that's the indeed, that's another problem that I have with this case. I, I think, um, with due respect to both levels of judges here, uh, and, and naturally they have to deal with um, the case as it's pleaded uh, to a litigator. That's the sort of language that I think we would use. It's pleaded. In other words, it's put on the basis of the Consumer Rights Act. So, you know, as a judge, I think you're although it's small claims track, you have a pretty much more leeway there, um, given that it's litigants in person. But nevertheless, uh, you are kind of like caught by the way the claimant fashions their own case. Um, and I think the mitigation arguments got, got it wrong in the case and even got it wrong on appeal, I'm afraid. That, that's my my opinion. I, I guess here, so, you know, in the light of what you've just said, Maggie, that, you know, because it is where it is and it started, uh, both parties were litigant in person. I think one of them had access to uh, a skeleton argument. Yeah, I think at the letter stages, uh, uh, Miss Coombs had a solicitor. Yeah, I, I think if, you know, what Tim mentioned earlier, you know, if you Google or Maggie, it's you actually Google consumer, you will yeah. come up, you know, it, the language of the consumer right repair and replacement is a lot more easily understood uh, by a lay person. Uh, and you may yeah, have well, access. I think what I'm saying is that the, the case became hijacked by Probably. that statutory yeah. no, but, provision. Know, but uh, also if you look at the, I, I think the, the, you know, you made a, you you made a valid point uh, about you know the 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 uh, European origin being a bit weird. But you know, if we look at how I guess being a civil lawyer, I don't really have a problem with the difference between movable and immovable item. But that's uh, beside the point. But also, you know, if you look at the judgment, he uh, the judge 
reverted quite quickly back to the English parlance of chattel. So, um, but here I think the you know we did have, you know we can discuss whether if it had been pleaded on a pure common law uh, contractual viewpoint whether it would have made. Uh, any difference. No, that's what I'm saying. I don't think it would have made any difference. It's just that you don't have this tangle with right to repair, does that apply or not? Because you, you, you're, not, you're not engaging with the rights set out in the Consumer Rights Act. And remember that the Act itself says this, that these rights do not displace Absolutely not. The, 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 yeah. the common law. Yeah. No, no, but yeah. you, wouldn't ex you wouldn't expect a litigant in person to actually you know, appreciate the sort of nuances yeah. of, of this quite tangled bit of legislation. And it's there to help consumers. And in many instances, it does. Yeah. But it's naturally tailored, isn't it, for buying a washing machine yes. or a car. Yeah. And these are the bog standard typical problems that you would get in a small claims track. Fine. But it's not. Well, that's the only point I'm trying to make. It's not naturally applicable and transferable to the purchase of, of a dog. It can be made to work for sure. But it, it's it's a bit of a struggle, isn't it? And I'm I'm not making the point about movable, immovable. It's this word item is a bit strange. Mm. You know, okay. do you talk about your hamster or your cat as an item? Well, no, you don't. And I think that's what I was trying to say at the beginning that you know it's <clears throat> it it would have been a lot easier in a way if it had been a pure commercial transaction that the that the dog was an investment, uh, and I think therefore that would have been a lot easier in a way, and that's why. I brought everything I brought up, you know, with, you know, it's a pet and, you know, um, clearly would any, you know, in, in, in a commercial setting, I think the person would have put the uh, poor um, animal down. Well, yes, that that's, that's the other point, isn't it, about uh, applying this, uh, and the judge actually did this quite rigidly, I think, I have a problem with this. The sort of rigid application of the damages are therefore the difference in value of the yeah. item, of the item, as, yeah. as it is and as it should have been. Um, and because uh, that difference in value was so great, and the cost of repair, again, artificial word in this setting, uh, it means the surgery, um, was yeah. disproportionate in in cold financial terms that is so um and so as you're saying severin that that's entirely a natural way of looking at items that are uh, not organic if you like that that are um uh, items in in the traditional way we would refer to a, a thing as an item a non-living being, I suppose, and it, it becomes uh, much harder when you talk about living beings as, as items. But that's the problem I also have with the, with the mitigation argument, because if, if, if you look at the case, uh, anyone listening, uh, you will see that the, the judge simply looks at the sort of commercial value of the puppy, mm. uh, whereas as Severin is saying, it, it was a pet, a puppy. Um, and... Um, had Miss Coombs accepted uh, Miss, Mrs. Pendragon's proposal to take the dog back, what would have happened to the puppy? As you, as you are suggesting, Severine, 
the likelihood is the puppy would have been put down. Mm. Yeah. Now, okay, um, uh, lo- looking at it in sentimental terms, th- that looks to be uh, unacceptable and unreasonable. But I would say looking at it as a lawyer, I think, on these particular facts, I think that means Miss um, Coombe's response was entirely reasonable. And remember, that's the word that we should use for mitigation. Was her behaviour reasonable in the circumstances of that particular case. And because the lady had pet insurance, I think that makes it even more so. Mm. And now we're moving into a commercial position, if you like. She had paid for the pet insurance. She had the benefit of it. I would say it would be wholly unreasonable for her to have said, well, forget my pet insurance. Yes, you have the wretched dog back. And if you put it down, then you put it down. Uh, because she had the pet insurance. Uh, It would be entirely reasonable to claim on that insurance, and indeed the pet insurer didn't appear to have any difficulty in paying up. Yeah. Uh, And and so they bore the the brunt of the £10,000 total bill, I think it came to, uh, less the the 20% that that Miss Coombs had to foot uh, for herself. But she has paid for the benefits of that separate contract, remember, yeah. So I think that's that's a, a point where I, I think the case really came off the rails, actually, on, on the mitigation point. I don't know what you think about that. Would it help Would it help if we saw the dog more as a unique item? Yes, I... Because so far we're thinking of the, we're thinking of the item as in you pay a thousand pounds and you get the same dog. Well, that's simply not true. No. We're getting something that's quite unique in character, in being, you know, I'm thinking of old Chinese vases, things like that, uh, along that category. Is that going to help us in any kind of way? Let's say we are going to frame this outside of the Consumer Rights Act. Would that help? I, I think it would be difficult to argue uniqueness. because I mean, you know, if you look that up in a dictionary, I think you'd have to say there is nothing equivalent to that. I know old English sheepdog uh, breeding is actually uh, in decline now. And I I think I saw something in the Times a couple of weeks ago, you might have seen it, that the breed is possibly uh, going out of existence in in this country because people, uh, they're expensive and they take a lot of time and care, grooming and so forth, you know. Uh, uh, listener, you, if you don't know what an old English sheepdog is, um, Google the Dulux paint advert and you will see uh, an example of an old English sheepdog. They have a lot of hair and they are a very large dog. So they would be expensive and time consuming to look after properly. And it's because of that, I think, that the breed is in decline. But even so, Tim, I don't think you get far in a court arguing that a puppy is unique. It would be different, maybe, if your puppy was a winner at Crufts, for example. But can you, I mean, you know, again, the, you know, the question of a unique chattel was, you know, very briefly looked at. But if we think of it in terms of, so the way this uh, dog came to be (laughs) as an accident mating, (laughs) accidental mating, I will. Well, I think this is because, isn't it, that uh, the mother that uh, that Tim referred to had a high risk of, of carrying hip dysplasia 
uh, she wasn't herself showing any difficulties. She didn't have her problem, uh, but genetically, uh, the tests would have come back as, as a high risk. And, and it's because of that, I think, that the Kennel Club uh, would have said uh, and, and put on her, her registration that this animal is not to be bred from. So to that extent, it, it's an accidental uh, mating because the breeder obviously knew that she, she couldn't really um, register any of the puppies that might might come from that. I know. So therefore, the breeder would not, because of that, breed her. So therefore, that's yeah. why yeah. in that way, yeah. she is unlikely, having been bitten once with this case, the breeder is no doubt going to be very careful as to where this, you know, dog or, you know, the mother is going to be... <laughs> in contact with uh, other males uh, but as a, no but therefore as a result you know you could say that it is you know it is a, a to to put it in blunt commercial term that is not in the financial interest of the breeder to have that beach breed uh, anymore because clearly you know she has lost a lot of money through that so therefore in that way could we consider that it is a unique item i know we usually consider unique item as irrepressible because they are so unique and you know they are one of a kind uh because they are so expensive here she is a, a you know lady is also a unique item um I, th I think the Lord, I don't, don't, you, don't you agree that with this, the law would have difficulty uh, accepting that uh, a dog without some special characteristic is... is, is, is well, wouldn't the DNA itself be unique, right? I think my, my dog has this DNA, and, and up until the point that we can create them in a Petri dish, it remains unique. You can't get that combination again. Wow. Thank you, Severine. Well, the law uses this concept of uniqueness. Uh, the law uses the concept of uniqueness, surely, as an explanation for uh, a, a difference in, in value. Yeah. Uh, and it's yeah. about the monetary market value of the thing. Um, yes. An old English sheepdog uh, that is unexceptional in breeding terms will have a market value if you're looking at it purely commercially, but I think it would be very difficult to successfully argue with a court at any rate uh, that that makes it unique. If it was, you know, like red rum, for example, the racehorse, uh, or, or desert orchid, the racehorse who's, who's uh, won so many uh, uh, races, or a, a breeding mare, for example, or, uh, or a, a male... Yeah. That that would be a, a different kettle of fish, I think. That would be getting closer to your analogy about uh, as uh, an antique. Uh, but uh, an ordinary, if I use that word, um, dog of a particular breed, I think you would have real difficulties claiming uniqueness. Yeah, she's unique for all the wrong reasons. Um, you, you know, which, you know, uniqueness, you're right, is usually uh, pleaded in order to claim, you know, really high damages here. She's unique for the wrong reason, uh, because she is so, you know, va well, 
a part, and, and that's where I go back to the emotional value associated with a dog that, you know, the owner uh, did take uh, insurance, uh, which is not cheap, uh, and therefore is perfectly happy. She, she, she's not going to claim for any more uh, of the pet because I think, the, aside what you said, Tim, I think she's also going to be in need of the second heap to be replaced. Uh, so it's not as if, ah, you know... Ah, well, interesting the, the, point on the, um, the, the surgery... Yeah. I, I think if you look at the judgments, the first surgery failed. There was some problem with it, and she had to have further surgery. Now, I can entirely see that the, the second letter, lot of surgery would not be uh, reasonably within the contemplation of the party. So you're handling Baxendale. Probably I know. knocks that one on the head. No, no, no. I, I, I wasn't referring to that. I was trying to refer to the fact that I thought I had understood that. So she's had one hip replaced, uh, but I understood that it was likely that she had the second. Uh, she was going to have the second hip to be re No? Okay, oh well. No, she had the second. She had it done twice. Same hip twice, I think. I know, but... He, and the other one, I think, is not fine. Oh, okay. I understood. I understood. I know she's had one that failed, so therefore she's had it. She's had a second surgery. But I had understood that her other hip, hip, was also going to be in need of uh, replacement. I, yeah. Um, which which brings me on to the next point is is of this whole satisfactory quality. Now, where do we draw the line? So say you get a, a dog which is, I don't know, allergic to grass. I mean, that is probably going to fall outside of this. And you all know that I'm doing this just to, um, just to fan the fire a little bit. But, you know, it seems to me here that this all comes down to a manufacturing defect, if I may call it that. Um, latent defect. <laughs> well, here um, we're talking about a genetic defect, defect. aren't we? Yes. That's what we're talking about. So presumably, if we could then prove that the hay fever or whatever comes down the hereditary line, we would be able to claim that back for our dog. Well, no, they, you, you, you're back down the difficulties, I think, of applying rigidly the terminology and the provisions used in the Consumer Rights Act into an animal situation. It's entirely applicable to do these sorts of questions where what you're talking about is a car or a washing machine. Um, you know, the Consumer Rights Act talks about freedom from defects, doesn't it? Um, and more will be expected of a brand new thing than a second hand thing. But you, you can see how this does not really fit with a, a sentient being, a living living animal, uh, very few of us, probably nobody on earth, is free from all defects, regardless of one's age. Tim's putting his hand up now, claiming <laughs> claiming perfection. Uh, only only God can. Didn't know I'd be. I didn't perfection. know I'd be given away there. <laughs> um. But, you know, that, that I, I just sort of offer that to show how, how ridiculous it is, really, to try and talk about freedom from defects when you're talking about a, a living item. Uh, living items are never free from something, uh, hidden or otherwise, latent or patent. Uh, so the Consumer Rights Act is, is, is a, an unnatural thing, I think. It, it, in many instances, it will apply 
entirely satisfactorily to living things. But when you get to these very fine points about defects uh, and, and what that actually means, perfection, it can't possibly mean perfection in a living animal. I mean, I think to be pedantic, it's freedom from minor defect, which refers to something quite technical. So, but I'm but just that would pedantic. be a new item, wouldn't it, Severing? You, I know, you, yes. you would it's, not expect you know, a second-hand item, for example, or something that's been living, if I use that sort of uh, way of talking about things, uh, for a period of time, to be free from maybe major defects do you see what i mean no no it's just because of because of the expression that you know we were using freedom from defect you know it's something by by the fact that something is not of satisfactory quality it will be defective i was just being pedantic about you know the expression freedom from minor defect which makes reference to uh you know blemishes and things like that and i th i think that's Clearly yes, not what yeah. we are talking okay, about. Okay, but here. my point is what's the standard is of a new item, a brand new yes, manufactured absolutely. item oh, yeah, yeah. is yeah. entirely different from something yeah. that is second hand and the legislation accepts that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's move away from the legislation in a bit. This whole thing about misrepresentation, an implied term an Im an implied claim for misrepresentation well you can't have an implied feeling. no you can't have an well, implied that, is, that seems to me what <laughs> what judge kazar is saying um you is can't it? have a no you a, can't you can't term. because if you think about it to misrepresentation is quite a serious thing to allege mm. but you've got to allege it all right any okay. any claim that you make and I, now i'm wearing my civil litigator's hat and getting heated about this implied assertion you can't have that that's not fair you know think about access to justice if you you know you don't want to buy my civil lit look at things um you know if you've got an allegation you make it clearly set out what the facts are and you know that's the agenda that's the menu for the court but you can't have an inference or a suggestion or a half thought of something it, you either say it or you shut up but don't you think miss coombe thinks that she said it uh i mean remember that she's not re represented look, here yeah, you know she's you... saying miss pendragon she she lied to me that's got to be the same as saying there's a misrepresentation and well, we'll talk about well, the lying part is I a bit extreme that, i hope that that wasn't put in that way because if you suggest someone's lying that is uh, one of the most serious things that you can allege. That's that's knowingly saying something. I, I do think the judge said it fell short of that. I need to. I need to yeah. have it. Okay. That. Yes, I do think he it, did. I think they said it fell short of fraud. Um, yeah. I thought what the appeal appeal but... judge was saying is uh, most of what Miss Coombs was possibly suggesting, although not clearly pleading was really non-disclosure. So that's an interesting point in terms of contract law because remember, there is this very clear, bright line, which is rather muddy for insurance law, but very clear for general contract law, that the, uh, the obligation on you is not about disclosure. It's about accuracy on what you say. Yes. And how you behave. So we're looking for a positive thing rather than a negative thing. And I think if 
the, the, the judge is saying, well, most of, of what is being said by Ms. Coombs is, is really a, a non-disclosure. If she really meant misrepresentation, then she would have had to have come up with a lot more factual uh, uh, grounds for that. So the, the inference, I think, what I get from it is um, that the breeder, Mrs. Pendragon, had taken uh, the mother of Lady the Puppy to the vet and she had had an x-ray and she's trying to, to, to knit all that together and say Mrs. Pendragon must have known that there was a high risk of hip dysplasia in my puppy and she didn't tell me that and she gave me every uh, inference to believe that there was no problem at all uh, and and so do you see it's it's the, it's that very gray area between non-disclosure and misrepresentation and not saying something as opposed to saying something um but but well, what it seems to me in the judgment it says Miss Tragon told Miss Coombe da, 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 that had been tested for her hip yeah. score and that she was yeah. waiting for the results. Yeah, yeah, because that's two different things, remember? If you look at the, the and case... And then it later says, OK, Miss Coombe's There Coombe's is an x-ray yeah. and Miss Coombe's own expert evidence, her own expert says uh, most vets would not have given a judgment on the x-ray because reading the x-ray mm. is a specialist technical mm. task and most vets are not actually attuned to do that. That's not really what they're asked to do. So a specialist would have, have to look at that. So her own expert uh, undermined a, a suggestion of misrepresentation because it was likely that the vet didn't commit themselves to uh, Miss, Mrs Pendragon when looking at the x-ray because they themselves wouldn't have been sure. They were waiting for... Uh, the, the technical test to come back and that, that's not an x-ray as I understand it but some other test. Now it seems to me in this whole thing that it, it's, it's a bit odd that Miss Coombe only claimed for the part of the insurance that, that she had to pay. Well um, not, not odd, why? not odd if no. you look at it as small claims track without a solicitor and indeed, she ended up with a solicitor later on, I think. But someone who doesn't really know what they're about, if I can put it rudely, um, perhaps innocently, entirely correctly would think, I can only claim for the amount of money that I've had to put my hand in my pocket for. Uh, entirely honest way of proceeding, I think, for, for an ordinary person, Joe Public, as it were. So she thinks to herself, well, I've only had to pay 20% of this bill, therefore I, I can only claim 20% of the bill. Yeah, yeah, entirely reasonable approach for anyone to take. It's just that the law would say you could claim for the full amount, but here's the sting, you can't keep the full amount. Yes. You would have to pay back to your insurer the 80% that they've paid. So I don't know. Maybe somebody said that to her. So she, she didn't want to involve the insurers. So she just said, well, I'll just claim for the, the amount that I've actually cost, cost me. So that, that could easily be the explanation. So how would we frame this case if we were going to bring it? In other words, what what did they do? Well? I wouldn't I wouldn't be banging on about the Consumer Rights Act. 
I would be banging on about the common law express and or implied term that the uh, the puppy, although um, uh, an unintended mating, uh, there was no reason why she would have any hip problem. And nobody knew about the diabetes. But you see, so the, the beauty about bringing it under the Consumer Rights Act is that she doesn't have to prove that there is an implied term as to satisfactory quality. Whilst if she does, so that's one aspect, you know, because it is implied uh, into the contract. Would a court uh, imply that it is necessary for the contract that given that she was told that, you know, um, the pet could not be used for um, um, breeding purposes, would a court, would have would her court have found necessary to imply the satisfactory quality? I don't know. That's an interesting well, question. I, I, Just thinking I think on my feet right now. it would be down to what passed between the parties at the time when they were negotiating the purchase. Uh, the buyer knew it, were, knew it was a cheap, I don't know what the, a pedigree puppy old English sheepdog would cost, but she paid a thousand pounds and apparently that was less than a pedigree puppy. Yeah. Right. So she knew it was cheaper uh, because uh, the evidence, I think, in the judgment, so she, she knew it was cheaper, but uh, the way in which it was expressed to her was that it was cheaper because the puppy couldn't be registered with the kennel club yeah. because of the way in which she'd come about, as it were. Uh, not that she had a hip dysplasia risk or problem. No. Um, but because hip dysplasia must have been discussed, because you yourself, Severin, said something about um, uh, they, they knew that the, there was some testing being done and they were yes. waiting for the results. Yeah. It would yeah. be around that. That would be the, the uh, uh, critical bit of the evidence, I think. What was said by Mrs. Pendragon at, at that time and what was understood by the way in which she was behaving about that, as far as Mrs. Coombs is concerned, did the puppy have an appreciable risk of hip dysplasia or not? To understand whether the buyer is taking the risk of that... Do you see where I'm going with that? Yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think on my feet whether the court would find it necessary to imply, you know, because so in terms of the dog, you know, would you find that when you buy a pet, it is implied that you buy a pet to bring you enjoyment for a certain amount of time. Therefore, if that amount of time is... I mean, one of the things that I don't know whether that dog is going to leave... Uh, you know, once the, you know, now that the surgery has been done, I don't know what the, what is the uh, life expectancy of that dog. Clearly that dog is going to be costing an awful lot more than, um, uh, because she's going to be on drugs uh, for the rest of her life. Would that be, when oh, you buy a dog. That's the diabetes problem, I think. Um, which uh, would not have supp oh, yes, supported that's true. the no, claim but because, uh, 
I know, but the fact that the dog has had surgery, that means... I'm just trying to think on my feet here. Would it be necessary for the purpose of the contract to imply a term that a dog that you buy has to be of, you know, for want of a better word, satisfactory quality, that you're going to expect a dog to be free of latent defect, which means that... Not any latent defect, but a serious one that would necessitate hip replacement. Yes, I would say so. Because you, you, you buy a dog on the expectation that it will, all being well, live for, say, 10 years. That would be a, a, a quite a, a, a standard age. And for an old English sheepdog, I think that's also so. So um, you would expect that... Whatever defects it have, if, if we use that word, uh, would not be something to uh, require surgery uh, within a, the year of buying the, the animal. But anyway, I think what it, it, it still means that, you know, you would not expect, given that we are in the county court, in, in the... Um, yeah, yeah, we are, yeah. It, in, in, yes, we are in the county court that in the light of what we were saying earlier, I think our answer to the very first question, why, you know, that because it would need to be established, it would need to be proven. Surely a litigant in person wouldn't have uh, the the knowledge to establish that, you know, there is a need to imply a term whilst, you know, under the Consumer Rights Act, it's, you know, established as a matter of law. So that's why uh, she p- probably pleaded. Well, I'm, uh, I'm not sure that a litigant Act. in person would appreciate any of that either. Actually. I know. <laughs> I think somebody would have just true, said, actually, yeah. uh, refer yeah, to true. the Consumer Rights Act. <laughs> yeah. And section <laughs> this says true. that and section that yeah. says, and, and you will get your money. I mean, that you know, we are attuned now to naturally think consumers, therefore Consumer Rights Act. But that's really my point at the beginning. It's an, it's additional to the common law. It does not displace the common law. I accept entirely that if it says something contrary to what law we had prior to 2015, fine. Then the Consumer Rights Act is king and, and must hold the day. But where they are entirely consistent with one another... Uh, we must not throw the common law out of the window, but yes, I, I, I can see it's an unfortunate small claims track. Poor old Miss Coombs on her own, knowing no law and got a sick dog. Uh, you know, what is she to do? Yeah. So what do we think then? On what was pleaded? Was it the correct result? Uh, correct result, wrong damages, because this is my beef about the mitigation. I would have given her... 20% because that's all she had claimed 20% of the hip dysplasia uh, costs of the uh, one lot of surgery but not two lots of surgery on the basis that two lots of surgery would not have been within the reasonable contemplation of the parties at the time of any sale really of, of an animal uh, but one lot, and I wouldn't have given the damages on the basis of re- reduction in price. It, it would be the, the the surgery costs and formulated it on, on that entire basis. So really, all of this I'm bitching about is probably a thousand quid because looking at the very simple figures that we've got, if uh, it, we we for sake of argument, and I think that's more or less the sort of uh, idiot total that uh, the, the court came to that the total was about £10,000, but the claimant had restricted herself to 20%, 
even on my idiot maths, that's £2,000. She actually got a, a fraction over £1,000. So I'm bitching, if you like, about a thousand quid. But I, I don't like the way it was formulated, that's all. <laughs> Severine? Yes, I probably would agree with, you know, what uh, you said. Um Yes, I, I, I also, you know, the, the, the bit about uh, mitigation, I think what she did was perfectly okay. Uh, and so therefore, here we go back again to whether, you know, this kind of act is, this, this kind of legislation and talking about it in, you know, un, uh, detached goods, chattel, whatever the way we want well, to look at the, it. Well, here's the problem of small claims track again, because yeah. what litigant in person would comprehend that mitigation has to be pleaded by the defendant, uh, the burden is on the defendant, uh, the standard is objective but not a high one, all of those bits of law, if you like. Uh, yes. And then my additional argument that the insurance is a relevant fact, a relevant circumstance in order to judge whether uh, the claimant has been reasonable or not. And, and that's my main beef about the mitigation. And there's very little, if anything, in the judgment about that. It, it should, it's simply looked at brutally, if you like, crudely, as if you were buying a washing machine or a car. Yes. Uh, and, you, yes. You, you know, you could give them the damn thing back and had your money back. End of problem. And that's why I have this problem about transposing all of this legislation into a situation of buying a puppy. Yes. And I think we've learnt an awful lot with that. <laughs> For one, um, if you'd like to know more about the whole mitigation business, do check out our podcasts five and six, in which we touch on quite a few of those points. But we've learnt, of course, first of all, check the DNA of your pet before you buy it and <laughs> get legal advice before you go to court. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you, Severine. And if you have any ideas, any suggestions, any comments, uh, anything you think we should be discussing, no promises that we will uh, do that, but uh, we'd love to hear from you. Send us either a voicemail or an email to unpacking.contract.law at gmail.com. Thank you. And well, till the next one. Thank bye you bye. very much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.